you think the word economist comes from the word economy, right? It has something to do with money, right? So as a, as a kid, you're like, oh, he must understand a lot about how the economy works. He can make a lot of money, right? <laughs> Wrong, right? If anything, the word economist comes from the word economizing. Welcome to the Medical Dads Podcast, a parenting podcast by two dads who happen to be medical doctors. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Harmon, a pediatric emergency room physician and father of four from Ottawa, Ontario. I want to be in the podcast. Daddy, do you know what you're doing? Can I play a game on your computer? Daddy, where's mommy? And I'm your other co-host, Dr. David Shu, a family doctor from Toronto, Ontario. Welcome aboard. All right, Dr. Harmon, we're back for another episode of Medical Dads. Back we are, and this one's this one's all about us. <laughs> it's all about dads. Yes, finally, <laughs> finally, our favorite day of the year, <laughs> Father's Christmas. <laughs> actually, actually, this kind of ties into the story, but um, I actually never really celebrated Father's Day that much growing up. Surprise! <laughs> what a holiday you didn't celebrate? <laughs> the calendar man here. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I never, I don't think our family ever really recognized this day. The only thing that I know about Father's Day is that it does exist in Taiwan. So it's, but it's on a different day. Okay. So in, in China, in Mandarin, the number eight is, is called Ba, okay. right? Ba. And, and so Father's Day in Taiwan is called Ba Ba, Ba Ba Jie, right? Why is it called it? I'm mangling. I'm mangling all my tones. It's Baba Jie because Baba means daddy okay. in Chinese, right? And so the day that you celebrate it is August 8th. It's the eighth day of the eighth month. So it's Ba, Ba Yue, Ba Hao. <laughs> and you get Baba Jie as a result of that. So there you go. There's your Chinese lesson. <laughs> nice. So we'd always, so you actually get two Father's Days on the Medical Dads podcast. There's another one in the summer. All right. Well, maybe we'll have to get together in the summer and record a Taiwanese Father's Day episode. <laughs> I'll tell you what, all my childhood experiences, uh, not celebrating Taiwanese Father's Day. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we will get into a little bit about Father's Day, but as is our tradition of this past year, every time a holiday rolls around, it seems like it's a good time to check in on what we're actually, what's actually going on with COVID right. <laughs> at the time <laughs> and reflect on a COVID version of the holiday. And now it's, and the reason we do this for our audience is, is not just because we love talking about COVID, but it's because when we do a holiday episode, we usually try to get it out in the next few days. Yeah. And then it fits with the COVID discussion because the COVID stuff is also always very like time sensitive. It changes so fast. You sound like an idiot when you, you talk all about COVID <laughs> and you post it three months later and people are like, what's that guy talking about? <laughs> it, it, to some degree, yes. Although... We do have some gems of some COVID episodes way back in the way back in our bin. You know, if you, at some point in the future, if people really want to ever relive 2020, heaven forbid, they want to get that feeling of what COVID was like at the beginning. Yeah. Like I'm going to put up a list of our COVID special episodes someday and people can listen through that and journey with us through the past. First episode, coronavirus, will it affect us? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it'll be over in a couple months. Don't worry about it, <laughs> said Dr. Harmon. Did you hear about this thing in China? Ah, it's not coming here. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so right now, it's it's we're getting in the middle of June, and the school year for the kids is ending. Um, I mean, we're both in Ontario, where the schools have stayed closed for the rest of the That's year. Right. right. So our kids, 
our kids basically went home for March break and they didn't come back to school, which is similar to last year's school year. So we're kind of closing out this year the same way we closed out last year. But we're in a situation where the virus seems to be, I don't don't even want to say petering out, but it seems to be slowing down a little bit. The the numbers have climbed down from from some record-breaking highs, if we were talking about two, three months ago, Mm -hmm. uh, to now the type of numbers similar or even maybe somewhat better than we were seeing last year at this time. Right. In Ottawa, I think yesterday or the day before, we had something like 14 cases, Mm -hmm. uh, which is down from before having numbers that were up in the 300s. Right. I mean, and then with the vaccine and more and more people getting vaccinated, many people now getting their second doses, and probably by midsummer, a significant percentage of our population will have their second doses. Yeah. And the good weather coming and the opportunity to hang out outdoors and be socially distant, you know, and a little less worry from that respect. Things are generally on the uptick. You know, stores have opened. Indigo, the bookstore, has opened this week, right? Restaurants are open. What, what are the rules for Indigo? Can you can you just go in there now and sit down and read a book? I, I actually did not bother to look at carefully because I don't plan on going to the store. <laughs> like the rules exist, but I'm not going to follow. I'm not going to be the first guy in the store, right? Yeah, I, mean, I have a general sense that uh, I think Friday last week was a landmark day for when we were supposed to change the phase we're in and things were supposed to reopen. But like mm-hmm. most of this time during COVID, after that initial period of just things being straightforward, everything's locked down, there's confusion now about, well, wait, what's open, what's closed, what can I do, what can I do? <laughs> I was yeah. walking to uh, post a letter and I walked by a nail salon and uh, the door was open ajar. So a woman bursts in and says, oh, are you guys open? And they're saying, no, 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 you can't come in here. Get out, get out. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a weird situation to be in. Like things are starting to look up, okay. but at the same time, there's still talk of more variants coming, right? There's I've heard rumblings, you know, in the Twitterverse and the Doctorverse of the, this Delta uh, Delta variant coming right uh, from India. Because there's the Beta variant right now, right? That's one of the variants that we've been I talking don't about. Even the beta know. Variant. I, I I don't even know where we are now, but yeah, there's another one coming, and it it could be bad. There could be a fourth wave. Until it all peaks with the uh, the Omega variant. That's when it's all over. <laughs> so that's that's where we are right now. And and at this stage of the virus, you know, it's not as scary necessarily, not as in your face, right? Yeah. But, you know, actually a whole bunch of my patients are still sick with COVID. And there's been actually not this month, but like the last two months was particularly bad. Yeah. Right. So although there's this feeling of hope, it really feels we literally have just maybe turned the corner a little bit here. Yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, after the big battle, you still have to clean up all the debris and stuff on the battlefield. And that's what's a little bit like right now, where the numbers of new cases has dropped down significantly. But you still have people in the ICU from before who still haven't mm-hmm. got out yet. So here's a couple of the big ticket questions that we're getting. Okay. Right. And let's see if we can give them the medical dad's answer. Number one question. And we've talked about the vaccine a lot. Right. And then we talked a lot about AstraZeneca. Right. Yeah. The big question now is if you got AstraZeneca for your first dose. Right. Which many people did. Yeah. What should you do for the second dose? Right. And I know that doctors and these medical associations are giving this really wishy-washy answer. (laughs) Right. It's like you could do you could do another dose of AstraZeneca or you could do a dose of one of these mRNA vaccines, like one of these other vaccines, That's like right. Pfizer or Moderna. So 
if you want to break it down simply for people, what's the answer? Which one should they get if they have a choice? But d- can people still get the AstraZeneca vaccine? Is that still an option? Yes. Okay. Yes, it's an option. Oh, but right only now, for people who had their first dose of Astrazeneca because they stopped giving people a first dose of AstraZeneca, right? Yeah, who, because who wants to go down that road at this point <laughs> of, the, of the ball game? Yeah, I mean, it seems like kind of common sense that if they are saying that you can take a, a, if you can mix and match the vaccines if that's what they're saying is you can you can take something else for your second dose then you might as well take something else for your second dose as opposed to take the thing that they stopped giving out because there was some concern it was giving people blood clots right and the second and 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 moderna and pfizer statistically are a little bit better vaccines like their protection rate is slightly higher yeah right so you factor both of these in the real question, I suppose, is should people just be starting over? If they've got AstraZeneca and they're going to switch courses, should they get two doses, two more doses of the same thing? Or should they just get one dose? Yeah, that that question actually has has not come up that much in conversation, right? Because yeah. I don't think the government this far has uh, is going to allow people to do a third dose of, yeah. of the vaccine yet, yet right but it is the logical question to ask you know like so then you're sitting there with one dose of pfizer right and one dose of astrazeneca six months ago yeah should you get another dose of pfizer later in the year right intuitively you would think yes and generally historically with vaccines you know we've never had problems with like you know people doing multiple doses of mmr you know sometimes people lose their vaccine record from childhood so you know we redo all the shots again Right. So intuitively to physicians, we probably have this feeling that it's probably okay to, to, you know, just to finish those courses. But we haven't gotten the official word, you know, from the powers that be that 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 fund these vaccines and make these safety decisions to tell us so. I mean, I guess here's where we're at with this. The science isn't there in terms of the actual clinical research and experience to know does mixing two different vaccines actually give you as good protection as we thought you would get from two doses of the same vaccine? Because right? mm-hmm. those vaccines were studied, right, supposedly, they were studied uh, in a certain way uh, and had the outcomes measured. So when they say that Pfizer gives you 90 cent, 90% protection, they only know that to be true in the sense of the way they specifically tested it and used it in their clinical mm-hmm. trials. And we know when used and delivered that way, it gives you 90% protection. But then for all these practical reasons, after it was actually studied, uh, there's been all kinds of reasons why people have been switching up uh, giving the vaccine the way it was designed. You know, mm-hmm. things like stretching out the, t- the time between doses or shortening the time between doses or mm-hmm. giving one dose of one vaccine, one dose of another. And we don't actually know for a fact that those things work as effectively as if you take the vaccine as intended. Mm-hmm. If all things were being equal and, there were, and money was no issue and it was just a matter of like, it's all available to you, then it would make sense to say, oh, you know, I took one vaccine, but I'm stopping that one. So I'm going to take two doses. I'm going to take a full course of the second vaccine. But Mm -hmm. because we don't live in this hypothetical scenario where money is no object and there's no practical considerations to worry about, um, we're only right now at this point being given one more dose. And for like the theoretical science, not the actually applied science that we've studied, but all the theoretical science would suggest that, yeah, if you had one dose of one vaccine and you take a different dose of another one, the technology of how they work is similar enough that it, it, should, it should give you the same protection that you would get from two doses of the same vaccine. So that's mm-hmm. where it stands right now. Um, so you don't have the option yet of saying like, I, I want to restart with Pfizer from step one. Uh, but you can say, oh, you know, I'm going to take step two 
or I'm going to take my second dose as Pfizer if I had my first dose of AstraZeneca. Mm -hmm. And I think what the medical dads are saying is, yeah, if you took AstraZeneca before, but you have a chance to get one of the other ones now, go ahead and get one of the other ones. If you have no choice and the only option you have is to take AstraZeneca, because for some reason none of the other ones are available in your region, um, well, we don't know for sure what will happen if you do, but the chance of you actually having a blood clot if you didn't have it on the first trial or first round is exceedingly low. But mm. nobody would take a low chance if they didn't have to. I mean, good to hear that you and I are on the same page with this advice. Yeah. <laughs> Makes the show go a little bit easier. <laughs> That's right. There's more time to talk about Father's Day. One one thing that I find interesting about about this whole question about the vaccine and, and all these questions that have kind of unfurled over the last few months as the vaccines have been released is that in medicine, the way you and I were trained to practice medicine generally was something called evidence-based medicine. Like if you're not in medicine, you might not hear this term bandied about that much. Yeah. But for those of us, you know, who have gone through medical training in the last couple of decades or are working in medical education, like there's this whole idea that everything you do in medicine is based on evidence, you know, the yeah. best evidence that exists. So usually it comes in the form of research trials. Like, you know, before, before we give a medication or give a treatment or even, you know, figure out a way to investigate a certain thing with a patient yeah. we look at what the best evidence says is the thing that we should do next yeah. right so you know if you have high blood pressure we consult these guidelines or these studies that tell us the evidence says that a guy with high blood pressure probably needs to start one of these kind of medications at these doses when their blood pressure is at a certain level yeah. right and that's all fine and dandy when you have, you know, these issues like hypertension and cholesterol and whatever, where, where there's years and years of evidence being piled up, up to make these calls. Yeah. And in the last year, we've been dealing with this thing that is so new, yet yeah. so complicated yeah. that there's, there's no evidence. Just like this question about like, you know, which, which should I mix and mask the vaccines? And I end up having these conversations with patients. It's like, yeah. I'll know the answer to your question in two years, like five years from now, I got this. Like I know the answer, Yeah. but you know, today we don't know the answer and you kind of have to make this guess and it's kind of intuitive. It's, and sometimes our best guesses are wrong, right? Like if Absolutely. you had said before the AstraZeneca vaccine had been given to anyone, is it going to cause a massive amount of enough blood clots to send the world into hysteria? You would have said, no way, don't worry about it. Right. But sometimes it happens. Right. So, yeah. It, it, it is a, it's really changing how we think about medicine in a way, right? And in some ways, it's causing people to really not trust it, right? Like yeah. as soon as the, the, the evidence changes a little bit, people are like, oh, I'm fed up. I'm fed up with medicine. This yeah. stuff is all dangerous. Get me out of here, yeah. right? They don't understand that actually this is just how medicine works and it takes time to get these answers and we don't have the luxury of that right now so it's it's causing us to have to make some tough calls yeah that whole idea about how you like build and collect evidence to make the statements that we know to be true or to uh, uh to write the books that we that we write uh mm. reminds me when i was in in graduate school you know before i actually uh started medical school and i was doing research involving fish and fish physiology and i was describing it to somebody and she's saying to me, well, does it really necessary to do all that and put the, the fish through stress? Can't you just look up the answer in a book? And <laughs> like, oh, gosh. <laughs> you know. You're probably like, yeah, <laughs> horrible first date discussion. <laughs> it's just like, you know, 
yes, I could look it up uh, in a book if such a book existed, uh, which it won't <laughs> until I finish these experiments and then write that book. Lady, this is cutting edge stuff I'm doing here. No one in the history of the world has attempted this stuff, just so you know. But I think for a lot of people, there is sort of an idea of, well, knowledge just comes from people who are really smart and have read lots of books. And, you know, uh, if, if, if you don't know something, all you have to do is ask somebody who's smarter or ask somebody who's read more books than you, mm. um, which I think that sometimes gets into the whole area of, of why people, when they're not satisfied with their doctors saying, you know, no, we just don't know, they start going to other sources and saying, you know, doctors aren't the only source of knowledge. I can get knowledge from this guy. Um, mm. And he's not waiting for things like research or <laughs> science to, to make a decision. He'll tell me right now what I want to hear. Right, right. So, I mean, that's the whole other, the whole other can of beeswax, <laughs> like the realm of the naturopath. But I mean, it, it is this thing where like, we a lot of us have gotten comfortable with the idea that science will give us an answer that we can apply right so if yeah. i just wait around long enough i don't have to think because the answer will be obvious like i don't have to I, you know if i don't if i don't have to just, if i don't have to think too much about it yeah. at some point my kids just sign up they get their yellow card they get the vaccines that the government wants them to get you just follow that pattern right yeah and for many of us that's just how we operate when it comes to healthcare, we leave it in the hands of these experts and we're really seeing now that the experts don't know what's going on now you're on your own you make your own call mix and match the vaccine do whatever you want right and and what are people supposed to do we're like cavemen we're like cavemen uh in some kind of field uh full of all sorts of different berries and we're trying to figure <laughs> out like we need to eat right that's not an option to not eat we have to eat but we don't know for sure which berries are safe. And we will. In two years, we will, because enough people will have eaten berries to I, die from the bad ones. I disagree. There is a population of people who does who feels not eating is an option here. Right? <laughs> so there, there, there are people from all camps that have materialized in the last year or so. Well, I think there's, there's people who sort of figure, I never need to eat and I'll be fine. There's people who are like, Oh, I'll just eat whatever. I don't think about it. I'm sure all these berries are fine. People are making too big a deal about poison berries. And then there's a, <laughs> so a lot of people in between who are like, I have to eat eventually, but if I can just not eat long enough, then I'll see what happens to all the other people who are hungrier than me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There you go. That's the status of our world. I mean, one thing I wanted to mention was the vaccine. The other part of the vaccine that's really starting to hit home for me, maybe for you, I don't know, maybe not so much with children, is every symptom that people have now when they call us is prefaced with the sentence, I'm not sure if this is caused by the vaccine or not, yeah. <laughs> right? It's like this whole other conversation we have to have. Like my arm hurts from throwing a baseball super hard, but I'm not sure if it's caused by the vaccine, <laughs> Yeah. right? Like I, there's so much of that, right? And And to be honest, half the time when people make these like, casual linkages it's not that easy for the doctor to dismiss it because actually we don't know exactly what the vaccine does or not <laughs> that's true so that's true. it's it just causes a whole slew of difficult conversations with patients <laughs> yeah, yeah i had someone the other day who's telling me about uh, uh well the child had a little low-grade fever and some viral type symptoms and i'm saying like mm. most likely this is from a viral illness and i think if I remember this story correctly, the mother thought that it might have been related to something else uh, uh, less likely, like swimming in a lake or something like that. Um, and I'm saying, you know, you know, there's different possibilities. We, will, we won't know for sure. But common things being common, 
with the fever, this is most likely a, a viral illness because you're having more of those type of symptoms with right nose congestion. And then at the end, she's saying, oh, and we had a COVID vaccine uh, a week ago because this was a child who was older than 12. So she mm. had a COVID vaccine a week ago. Could it be that? It's like, yep, could be. <laughs> I mean, don't know for sure the time frame in which people will get mild symptoms from uh, from the COVID vaccine. But I mean, most right. practical experience I've had so far is shortly after, within three days. But yeah, absolutely, it could be from the vaccine, but well, it doesn't the, change anything. The problem I've had is that where's the back end of that time window? Because I've had people starting to get symptoms like two, three weeks in, which for right. most, in most cases, you wouldn't, you'd be like, well, the vaccines, you know, that's long gone. That shouldn't be an issue. Yeah. But at the same time, evidence is not there for you to really say no. <laughs> right. So you kind of end up with this, like hedging your bets, like, yeah, it could be, it's probably not, but let's just wait and see. <laughs> right. It's, it's like, if it is, it's pretty harmless. That's the good news. So let's mm. not focus on that. Let's focus on making sure we don't miss other more serious causes of why you're having these symptoms. Because, right? I mean, people aren't coming in with unable to breathe or, you know, passing out uh, a month after the vaccine, saying right. like that's in the vaccine. It's more that they get mild viral type symptoms or sometimes severe viral type symptoms. And then they're wondering, is it from the vaccine? And mm -hmm. then the kicker comes when you're saying like, eh, it's possible, but it's also possible you have COVID. So we need to do a test. <laughs> people are like, whoa, wait, wait. But I had a dose of vaccine. <laughs> now, at some point on the show... You had informed us that you were going to be getting your second dose. And I don't think we ever followed up with you about how that actually transpired and what happened with that. Yeah, yeah, I did. I got my second dose. And a few people have asked me afterwards, people who were supposed to be getting their second dose. They're saying, people have asked me, oh, I'm getting my second dose. And right now I'm scheduled to be working, you know, the next day or that weekend. And I, mm -hmm. I want to know, like, how, how bad did you feel after your second dose? Should I cancel <laughs> my shift or should I not go to work? And I'm just like... Well, the thing is, I did go to work right after I had my vaccine, and I'm always tired and exhausted. So uh, I can't tell if that's from the vaccine or just life, but I don't feel any worse than I normally do, I suppose. So it's fine. So you didn't really notice too much? No. Well, I mean, some people do. Don't get me right. wrong. Some people felt terrible after theirs. But for me, I, I got it, and I don't know. I, I wonder if they just left it out of the fridge so long that I didn't get an activated <laughs> vaccine anyway. Well, the other part of it is that the people, there are people who've called and said, you know what, I got my second dose and I didn't feel anything. Maybe it's not working. Right. And, yeah. and that and I've heard this, that, you know, there's this whole idea that the, the stronger of an immune response that your body generates, the more likely the vaccine works. So it's almost reassuring for people to feel really knocked out and exhausted, That's right. you know, the night of the vaccine or the next day. And that is not all evidence-based either. It's just this, this, there's this t story going around in the community like this. I suppose it's a scientific fact that uh, if the vaccine kills you, then you have achieved 100% protection from dying of COVID. <laughs> lovely, lovely. So that's the status of COVID at this moment. We yeah, continue to encourage people to go out and get your vaccines, get your second dose. It'll It'll help everybody, but especially your own peace of mind heading into this summer. Like, you know, we've been cooped up too long, and it's important that we finally get out and see our families and our extended families and whatnot. And the vaccine is a part of it. We've on this show, we've been pushing people to get vaccinated since day one. Yeah. That's not going to change. You know, whatever the second dose is, you know, get it done. Yeah, that is the take-home message. We're, we're we can see from the numbers improving that uh, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, and things can either go the way they did last year, where it got good for a while, then bad, or it can go in a new direction. It can get good, stay good, get better. 
and the mm. the the route to that outcome is definitely getting vaccinated. So please, everybody, get get your vaccinations. Get everybody you know to get their vaccinations, and let's uh, let's get back to the clubs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on that note, let's talk about Father's Day. You That's know, the right. day of the year that all the dads get out into the clubs. <laughs> Speaking of clubbing, <laughs> reminds me of being a father. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought it might be neat for us to just talk a little bit about our own dads. I mean, we've we've referenced these two men periodically on <laughs> yeah. the show, right? But without really going into too much detail about them, and maybe we could talk a little bit about, you know, who our dads are and what they did and, you know, like think about them a little bit during this Father's Day. Yeah. All right, go ahead. Well, I was I'm going to ask you, like, like I think people who've listened to our show know that your dad was a police officer, so that's, that's right. the first thing that jumps out at me. Yeah. Right. Uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about your dad's background? Like I, I know that he was British, right? That's right. Because we we talked about the keep calm and what is that saying? Like keep calm and keep calm and carry on. The classic. Yeah, yeah. Jewish, keep uh, calm and carry on. We talked about that at the beginning of COVID. Stiff upper lip. Yeah. Like so, what was his background? Like he grew up in England and then came over at some point. That's right. He uh, he was born in a place in uh, in the south of England, I believe, uh, called Whitstable. Uh, mm. And then when he was young, they moved uh, to a neighboring area called Ramsgate. So mm. if you look up uh, Ramsgate on the sort of British tourism websites or uh, sort of TripAdvisor, where people can post their comments. We were looking it up once, and somebody's comment was, Ramsgate, I visited there. It was horrible. I've made it my <laughs> mission on this website and in my life to make sure nobody ever accidentally goes there. <laughs> accidentally goes to Ramsgate. Like You were thinking about going to like Wimbledon or, or to London, and you, you decided to get a discount vacation ticket. That's right. If you were just like, oh, I want to just drive through and experience different parts of, uh, of, the, English, of the British coast. Uh, <laughs> if you end up in Ramsgate, then you've taken a wrong turn, apparently. So, so what did you know about your dad's upbringing? Like, what was it like? Like, what was his family like? So his father, uh, his father was a sailor. He had been in the Navy uh, uh, in World War II, and then uh, he had bought a fishing boat, and that's what he that's what he did afterwards. Um, and and yeah, I think he sailed in other capacities for income as well. So my dad grew up in a situation where his own father would have been gone for long stretches of time uh, and then come back home and then you have time with your dad and then he'd go out again. And uh, um, it kind of reminds me, thinking of my dad and his dad kind of reminds me of Popeye the Sailor. So <laughs> I don't know if anybody remembers, well, everybody should remember Popeye the Sailor. He's awesome. But in the original comics of Popeye the Sailor, they introduced this character of Popeye. And when they first introduced him, his sort of character is that he's like a, a gruff, stern type of guy um, mm. who uh, who's uh, who's no time for like for, for wasting on sentiment and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. And so uh, in those early Popeye strips, he's not quite the compassionate, lovable Popeye that you know now. Uh, but there was a lot of humor in the fact that he was a guy who, uh, for example, he's riding on a horse, the horse like trips and Popeye gets knocked off the horse um, and now he's trapped in the in the desert uh, with the, with a with his horse um, but he's so angry at the horse that he, that he punches the horse in the head and knocks the horse out and then I think carries on on foot that, that's the type of jokes that you got from Popeye anyhow uh, when they wanted to like soften up the character of Popeye a bit but didn't want to lose some of those jokes they introduced Popeye's father poop deck Pappy who is looks just like Popeye, except he's even meaner and more stern and more strict. 
<laughs> that's just like with my dad like often on the show I, I mentioned little anecdotes here and there about my dad growing up and you get the impression that he's a pretty strict dad uh, um, when it came to raising kids it was mostly practical and definitely expectations of discipline um, but compared to compared to his own father like I, I got Popeye and he's got poop deck pappy <laughs> like, his dad like my dad talk, well, I, I was asking my, my grandfather before he died I was talking to him about when he was a kid and he was saying like, oh yeah, yeah, I used to work on boats like like for different people when I was a kid. And I was saying, oh yeah, I bet they didn't have child labor laws and stuff when you were a kid. He's saying like, ah, oh, no, of course not. I remember I went up to the top of the, like, the mast to rig something up and I fell off. I fell like two <laughs> stories onto the deck. And you know, they brushed me off and sent me back up again. <laughs> Where's the workers' compensation board? <laughs> That's right. So that's my that my dad kind of grew up with a with a real kind of man's man of a father who is sort of like you know what you're crying what are you a little girl <laughs> get back to work <laughs> for the brief times that my dad saw him uh, so that was what my dad's kind of childhood was like his dad sailed a lot and then would come back home and then uh, he was mostly raised by my grandmother my what we call my nana and then he joined the police force when he was about sixteen because in England back in those days. Uh, you could, it, it, and unlike, unlike now where one would finish high school and then you would have to have some kind of university or college degree, then there's this competitive process to get into the police force. In England, you could just join the police force like right out of high school. Um, so I think he did either out of high school or transitioned like from high school to police college. Uh, and then you're in the police force and they set you up with a house and all this stuff and that's your life. Uh, so he was doing that when he met my mother who had come over from Jamaica to England to do nursing. He met her, they started dating, they had my oldest sister in England, then he moved to Canada. When he came to Canada, he had decided he was done with police work and he didn't want to be a policeman anymore. But I think at the same time, he felt like he was a little bit old to go back to school and 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 do the whole university experience. He, I think he felt like that was a young man's game. And in his mind, he, he was an old man at that time, which is funny because he probably would have been about 23. <laughs> he'd, he'd have been younger than like half our class in medical school. Um, and certainly not too old to go back and go to school by today's standards at all. Uh, but anyway, he did a bunch of different odd jobs in Ottawa. So he's got a lot of interesting stories about uh, working at, for OC Transpo, cleaning the buses, uh, working for like a factory where they used to unload and load up tea. Um, mm. And at various points, even before he came to Canada, he himself spent some time at sea doing uh, like jobs on boats. But when it came down to it, he found himself as a, as a father in Canada with a daughter um, and then was going to have another kid on the way before he knew it. Uh, and he needed, an, he needed to provide for his family. So he joined the police force in Ottawa. And then, uh, then he stayed on as a policeman. And he lived out the rest of his career as a police officer. Uh, he took early retirement when he was 50. Um, hmm. And then... Uh, uh, he's sort of just been doing various things to keep himself entertained since then. <laughs> so here's a question. Like, you're coming from this lineage of dads, like these stern, militaristic dads. Like, your grandfather yeah. was actually in the, you know, Royal Navy. Like, this is this is not like some little army. This is when the British Navy was the most dominant force in the world. <laughs> That's right. right. And so what do you think they would think if they saw how you parented your kids today, or I mean, your dad sees you parent, like yeah. what, what, like his, his, uh, what would he say about it? Or has he said anything to you about it? 
uh, yeah, he's 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 talked about some of this type of stuff. Like he he said he's he's actually pretty proud of uh, of seeing the way that uh, that I parent. Mm. Um, yeah, he. I, I think his own father, by the time he was an old man, whose children had now moved away from him, who his children didn't like, weren't all on good terms with him, and went through some resentment stuff like that. He got to a point where he looked back and he he felt like, yeah, if I could do it again, there's things I would do differently. My dad, in turn, uh, was I think tried to do, tried to not make a lot of the mistakes he felt like his own dad made. Um, mm-hmm. But then by the time he was a, an adult, he also looked back and probably felt like, you know, uh, there's things I could have done differently, uh, and and ways I could have prioritized being able to spend time with my family differently. Um, mm-hmm. And so when he sees me trying to uh, trying to do a, things differently than he did, uh, I think he's he's happy to see that. Uh, he's proud for that. Um, so I don't, I I think he'd be fine for the most part. But that said, I'm still like a relatively strict dad compared to a lot of people around me. And I, I, people might pick (laughs) up on that sometimes on the show when I talk about discipline. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. You're, but definitely not in the realm of these militaristic dads that, that I'm picturing when you talk about both your dad and your grandfather. Yeah. Your grandfather then is the one that you guys visited as a family that we alluded to like a few episodes back. That's right. When, that's right. When he was quite elderly with with your kids, his grandchildren, his great grandchildren. Yeah. Yeah. And like so many grandparents uh, and great grandparents, so much softer and gentler with uh, our kids than he was with us. I mean, <laughs> my grandfather was actually kind of when I remember getting spanked by my grandfather um, mm. when I was a kid. Me and my brother were goofing around in our bedroom when we, when we woke up in the morning. We were like wrestling on the bed. And I must have been on the bed with my butt in the air sticking out uh, from underneath the blanket. <laughs> That's just like an invitation to, be, to being spanked. Right. You don't have to do anything bad at that point. And then all of a sudden I feel this like this whap on my butt. Um, and I'm like, what the? And I look and it's my grandfather. And I'm so confused because I'm like, my parents spanked me. Since when are you allowed to spank me? And he's just yelling at us, you know, uh, yeah, your mother's trying to sleep. <laughs> you know, what are you doing making so much noise? And I was like, yeah, I am a little bit scared of this guy. Um, whereas when he met my kids, uh, they weren't scared of him at all. He was offering them like chocolates from a from a glass jar of like old person candy. And uh, he was just like Mr. Warm and Warm and Cuddly. So... So your that scene takes place in Canada. Like your grandfather would come visit you guys in Canada. Or uh, that's right. Not him? often, but he came and visits a couple of times. Well, maybe mm-hmm. three or four times. Okay. Yeah. So, any other stories regarding your dad? That if you if you thought back to it, you know, what were some times you know that you got to spend with your dad that are just kind of a little out of the ordinary or that are kind of memorable in that weird father son kind of way? Anything that jumps out to you? Because I. Hearing you talk about your dad, yeah. and not just today, but through all our episodes, I have—I still cannot really picture him as a warm and fuzzy dude. I'm having trouble imagining, like, would your dad have come and visited you while you were a med student at Queens? And I'm thinking probably not. <laughs> but what was that? What was it actually like with the guy? You know, as much as I talk about him being a strict dad, uh, he was also a very loving dad. And I think sometimes he struggled a little bit with like how exactly to show that and that type of thing. But no, he mm. was a pretty loving dad. And one of the things that I really, really remember enjoying, my dad had a, also was a guy with a sense of humor. People who, people who 
who knew my dad when they talk about him, people who, who have met him, when I, when I tell them, oh, yeah, that's my father, often their first thing is like, oh, yeah, that guy's hilarious. <laughs> but, yeah, there's a few things that I remember. And one of them is uh, there are certain uh, movies and TV shows and stuff that I watched with my dad back in the day uh, mm. where uh, when he would really like find something funny, sometimes he'd be laughing so hard that he'd be like falling off the couch. <laughs> and I remember when The Simpsons first came on as a television show, uh, I remember that was a time when a lot of parents were you know, anti-Simpsons, right? Like when that right. show first, first came out, people were like, oh, this Bart Simpson, so rude. No, terrible. My kids can't watch that. <laughs> you know, that's awful. Or when uh, Ren and Stimpy used to be another cartoon that came oh, on. Yes. That, yeah, that had a lot of jokes about poop and farts and stuff like that. Um, anyway, my dad loved to watch those shows and would watch them with us. And I liked watching The Simpsons, but if I saw an episode uh, that my dad hadn't seen and then it was coming on again, I would watch it again just to watch it with him because it was so much funnier to watch it when he was watching it and laughing. <laughs> Funny that you would mention that because one of the things about my dad, too, is nothing gets the man going like a good fart or urine joke you know <laughs> there's like i know that's low level humor it's you know it's not it's not highbrow comedy by any means yeah. but that's the kind of stuff that got our dads going <laughs> my dad was also the type of guy or is the type of guy he's, he's still alive but my dad's the type of guy where he'll envision something that he wants to do with the family or for the family and it's a lot like uh uh, like the dad on the the Griswold dad from uh, the National Lampoon's Vacation movies, where his his wife is saying, you know, Sonny, sometimes the problem is you get an idea for how things should go and you build it up so much that when it doesn't go that way, you get really disappointed. And uh, my dad could be a, a little bit like that, but my point is that he really had his heart in the right place often when trying to uh, trying to plan something that he thinks will be great that we're gonna love. And one of those things I remember was going to Canada's Wonderland. For listeners outside of Canada, Canada's Wonderland was a, a giant theme park outside of, uh, outside of Toronto, in Vaughan, a place outside of Toronto. Uh, still it, there. Yeah, it's still there. Exists. It, 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 uh, it's gone through different iterations and different names. And I think it's actually owned by the people who own Six Flags or something like that. But uh, anyway, Canada's Wonderland was a new place when I was a kid. Like it just sort of opened, I think, around ni- the year I was born. But my dad would plan these trips where we would drive from Ottawa to Canada's Wonderland. And I'm sure my mom, in a lot of ways, found those trips horrible because a lot of the work part of it was probably put on her managing four <laughs> kids in a five-hour drive in the back of a in the back of a pickup truck, having to stay with all the kids in these little cramped hotels and all this kind of stuff. But my dad, you know, he had his vision for how we're going to make the most out of that day, and we would be there when the park opened in the morning, uh, and we were there like right until the park closed at night, and I loved that so much. I I I remember one year we we didn't go and. Uh, me and my brother and sister were just like, so no, that's a tradition. We love it so much that my dad was like, hi, all right, if you guys love it that much, we'll do it again. <laughs> Whereas when I went to Wonderland with my wife and our kids, that's when I started to realize that that's not normal for everybody <laughs> that, that you would commit to the entire day. Right? Like, of course, as a kid, you're like, oh, we're going to stay here until it's dark. Awesome. But now from a parent's perspective where you start to realize uh, kids melt down, like everybody's nerves are frayed. People aren't meant to get the kids aren't meant to get that much excitement in one day. You're not supposed to shut the park down if you were there when it opened. But uh, uh, I certainly appreciate that for my dad. That's one of my fond memories of uh, 
of uh, a kid, and I could say that it's uh, although it couldn't happen without my mom facilitating it. Uh, I think my dad is the was the driving force behind why I'm able to have those memories. Yeah, we we need your mom on the show to really give us her version of the of those Wonderland days. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, I I think I can get a, a few glimpses of glimpses of what she was feeling uh, just by watching uh, what my wife uh, says no to in some of these circumstances. Now, when you mentioned that your dad was is just funny, the, the, the line that came to mind, I'm not even going to explain it, right? But the one line I remember, like you and I went to Europe and we told a million stories to each other about our lives. And the one I took home was your dad saying, make sure he didn't bring a knife to a gunfight. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. <laughs> Yeah, that was in reference to a, one of my sister's boyfriends threatening to show up at the house. <laughs> yeah, I, I, after listening to this, I think your dad and my dad probably could have gotten along. There could have been like a pre-medical dad's generation thing. <laughs> yeah, that uh, I'm not sure if I can actually tell that story on the uh, on the air, but um, we can always edit it out if it seems too, too extreme. <laughs> the gist of the story that you're referencing was... Uh, a guy that my sister was not interested in anymore. Uh, and uh, she had, so things had ended. Uh, but the guy called the house. My dad answered the phone. My dad having no idea who this clown even is who's talking to him. And the guy <laughs> saying something like, you know, I'm coming to your house. And he made the mistake of saying something that ended with the line, there will be big trouble. So my dad says, okay, I'll see you. And he hangs up the phone. Then he picks up the phone again and he calls the police station. And he's like, oh, this is Officer Harmon, badge number, whatever, whatever. Uh, just letting you know that somebody has uh, threatened uh, that they're coming to my house, potentially to make big trouble. Uh, so you're aware that there may be a situation. Then he hangs up the phone. Then he goes down to the basement and produces a rifle, which I did not even know we had in the house. I knew we had a gun because he's a policeman and I would see the gun in the holster like around the house. But or well, secured in the house. But I did not know that we also had a rifle because the guy does not go hunting or anything like that. But I guess that rifle is purely for boyfriend hunting because he just comes up the stairs with this rifle that I'd never seen before and says, well, this guy better not bring a knife to a gunfight. There you go. Unbelievable. And did the dude show up? Did, dude did not show up. <laughs> Thank, thankfully for him, he did not show up. Oh, man. Well, there you have it. That's There you go. Now I have a clear picture of your dad going forward. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, this is not enough to capsulate all the nuances of the man, but uh, it definitely gives you a little bit of the flavor. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, let me ask you a question about your dad. I'll start with this one. Like, whatever your dad did for a living, I don't think I have a clear understanding of your dad's <laughs> job, but did he encourage you to follow in his footsteps? No, absolutely not. My dad, my dad was an economist by trade. Okay. So he got a PhD in economics and we were always making fun of him at home yeah. for this, especially my mom, because you think the word economist comes from the word economy, right? right? Or economical. It has something to do with money, right? So yeah. as, a, as a kid, you're like, oh, he must understand a lot about how the economy works. He can make a lot of money, right? <laughs> Wrong, right? <laughs> if anything, the word economist comes from the word economizing, you know? <laughs> like, you know, like, uh, what is the economy class in the airplane? That's not where they sit the people with the most money, right? <laughs> it's like his, his thesis was ordering a, a, a Coke from McDonald's and telling them to hold the ice means you'll actually get more soda. <laughs> For, for your dollar. Oh yeah, that's a technique. I, I still do that technique sometimes. <laughs> so awesome. he was an economist 
he got his PhD and then he worked for the Ontario Ministry of Ontario government. And a lot of years in like the Ontario Ministry of Skills Development and then some more years in the Ministry of Labor. What he actually did at work is beyond me. Like you could tell me that your dad was a cop. I already can imagine like the weapons and like all this cool stuff. Yeah. Ministry of Labor, like he's sitting at a desk at a computer all the time yeah. doing spreadsheets. Yeah. He would like periodically, like you talk about like, you know, whether would follow in his footsteps. What he did was, you know, they would analyze the labor market, right? These are the jobs in Ontario. These are the jobs that are in demand. What are the reported salaries according to the tax report returns? And then bust out this data, you know, and it would always be, look, doctors, not near the top see? <laughs> and lawyers, right? So, so it's like a stereotype totally that like, you know, Asians are forcing their kids to go into one of these professions. Yeah. This guy actually printed out the data, like the, <laughs> the, the latest data, you know, year by year in Ontario to show this stuff to us at home. That's, that's actually the only reason he even <laughs> went into economics to study. He's like, I need to make sure my kids end up in the best possible career. And I got to start by get, doing the research. Well, the reason he went into that is, so it's weird, like, now, if you heard about it, like his actual degree was in something called like agricultural economics, okay. right? Which sounds completely dull and like something that farmers would need, right? Yeah. But when he went to school in Taiwan in the 60s, everything in those developing countries in the world, like Taiwan was one of them, China was one, like they were all about land reform. It was all about like, how do we make our society grow how do we make the economy grow yeah. and it was all about like how to allocate farmland and distribute land and, like all this stuff so that was actually a fairly competitive like you know kind of hot job <laughs> in a way that doesn't make sense to any of us now <laughs> right so it you know it was it wasn't like you, you you say now like oh i went i'm in agriculture economics and people are like rolling their eyes like oh i guess you're not very good of a student in in those days you had to be a decent student to, to do this yeah right and it was a fairly reputable thing. But then once you come into Canada, you know, it's not as useful, right? Yeah. So, you know, so then he ends up just, you know, working as a civil servant for most of his career. From what I could see, the job was not that demanding. So, like, I always kind of liked the idea that, you know, he was always home. He didn't ever have to work at night. You know, he was nine to five, but somehow in the, in the midst of that nine to five, he had time to go to Chinatown and buy groceries and bring him home for dinner. Yeah. So very hands-on involved that guy where, and his thing was that his job didn't come to define him, you know? Yeah. And so probably I got that from him too in the long run. Yeah. Your job is just the thing you do to make a living. It's not your identity. Right. Yeah. That's, I love that idea that, that, yeah, as a kid, you think this guy, he studied economics. Like he's, he's going to be, he's going to know how to make so much money. <laughs> and in the end, it's like saving money. You know, they have this saying in like in Chinese, it's, I don't even know if it's a true saying, but it was said in our house all the time. Yeah. So it must be true where you put your hand, like you, you close your hand and put all your fingers together. Okay. And then you look through your fingers, like you're holding your hand together, uh, closed, uh, and you look to see if there's any gaps in between your fingers. Yeah. If you have really skinny hands and there's lots of gaps, it means that when money arrives in your life, it'll just sift right through it. Right? It's <laughs> like money will just pour through your hand. Whereas if you have really nice pudgy fingers, that's the mark of a well, a wealthy man, a man who will hold on to his money his whole life. Really? You, I'll leave for you to decide which <laughs> hand my dad was dealt. <laughs> So, so basically, they just say, if you're flabby, then you're going to be wealthy. <laughs> <laughs> and 
that is a Chinese thing historically, right? Like in, in I'm sure you've heard of this, where in Chinese culture, if you see someone that you haven't seen in a long time, you say, "Oh, you've gained weight," right? That's a that's an ultimate compliment, right? Because you're coming from a culture where everyone's starving, right? Yeah. Anyone who's got a little bit of meat on their bones, that means that they're well off, right? That's so and... counter to everything I've heard from uh, Asian <laughs> girls who complain that they grew up in Canada and around here, everybody's like, "Oh, I wish I had your body. You're so thin." And then they go back and visit everyone in China, and everyone's like, "What?" <laughs> What are they feeding you, fatty? How'd you get so big? Well, that's a it's a peasant thing, but yes, that is the way it originally worked. <laughs> so, did you and your dad have specific activities you used to do together that you bonded over? Uh, we hung out a bit. I mean, I was always trying to get my dad to play sports with me. So, thinking back on it, like if if I have to like suddenly think about what did I do with my dad a big one is just like playing catch like a typical american upbringing you know throwing a baseball around with your dad or in our case it was the canadian version like i would be like wait all day for my dad to get home from work so that we could go take some shots in the basement like hockey shots yeah right so i'd strap on my roller skates and i'd have a baseball glove in one hand my goalie stick and then he'd have to shoot the tennis ball past me okay. right and he had a decent wrist shot with the tennis ball right and all there was right. nobody else in my family like my sister certainly could not do this yeah. there's no way my mom's gonna get roped in this so it's just me and my dad this is like the true the only guy who could who could take shots on me that would give me a bit of a workout <laughs> practicing playing goalie. So that's one that I remember. Um, the other one that I remember a lot is that we used to watch basketball together. Like the reason I got into basketball really is just because of my dad. Like before he got into, before he came to Canada, actually after he came to Canada. So he came to Canada like in 67, I'm going to say, or 66 and studied at Guelph. After he finishes his master's, he works a few years and then ends up going to North Carolina State to get do his PhD. And at that time, North Carolina State was like a powerhouse basketball team in yeah. the in the US. They they won the NCAA tournament, I think, in like 74 or something. And so even growing up by the late 80s, once a year, my dad would sit down in front of the TV and watch sports on his own, right? And this would be like on the night of the Final Four yeah. and the U.S. National Championship game, which would be at like 9 o'clock on a Monday night. It's the only time he would ever show any interest in this, yeah. right? And I'd be like, what is he watching? And then, so then I started watching a bit of it with him. And then within a couple of years, I became a huge fan. I think it's probably because of that, like that I got really into sports, yeah. you know, like... There's not that many activities that my dad did that I thought were cool, right? <laughs> this is probably the one, really. <laughs> same with my cousin. Like, my cousin and his dad were the same thing. Like, his dad kind of watched basketball because of, he did it in graduate school or watched it in graduate school. So then me and my cousin became huge basketball fans, and we started watching. So one of my big memories is, like, like I don't know. If you're not a big Hoops fan, you won't know this story. But in 1992... There was like a, there was like the best team in the nation was like Duke University. They had won almost every game that season, and now they're in the NCAA tournament. So the NCAA tournament is like a single elimination tournament. Like you you have to win set you have to win six games in a row to become the national champion. Only one team can do that every year, right? Everyone else will lose in this tournament field of 64, 32, 16, whatever, right? Yeah. They go through these rounds, so. For me, in those years, that was the most exciting thing. Like, every year, I got so hyped up for this tournament. Yeah. And my dad's kind of into it. So, like, I'd watch the games. Like, he's not watching every game, but I'd tell him what happened. 
And that year, our favorite team was Duke. Like they were just, you know, we had watched them win the year before. So this year they were chasing to become the first team to win back-to-back championships in like a 25-year period. It had never happened in our lifetime, right? And and Duke, actually, that school is in North Carolina. It's very close to North Carolina State. So my dad knew the area. He knew the coaches. Like we could actually talk about this stuff, right? So problem is that the final, uh, like the NCAA tournament, often the big games would happen like on a Saturday afternoon which for me was always during like piano lessons, Uh, right? So I had piano lessons on Saturday afternoon, like at four o'clock. It would run for like almost two hours between me and my sister, (laughs) both having to play and then the drive there and back. So it was always cutting into basketball time. That year, like Duke plays, is playing Kentucky. This is like the elite eight, which is means that the winner of this game goes to the final four next weekend. So this is already like high stakes basketball. Yeah. In the, that game in the in the long run became considered by pretty much all college basketball fans as the greatest game ever played. Like if you Google like greatest college basketball game ever played, this is the one. Like Duke versus Kentucky, 1992. I actually saw that game, the second half of it with my dad. I didn't watch the first half because we were at piano. Uh, I thought this story was going to be like, this day stuck out in my mind because my dad actually surprised <laughs> me and said, today, son, we're skipping piano. But no, 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 no. You still have no. to go to piano. We're watching the game, and so this is the game where, like, Duke Duke is down by a point late. They make a basket, so now they're up one. There's, like, three seconds left. Kentucky inbounds. They shoot this floater. It goes in. So now Kentucky's up by one. There's only 2.1 seconds left in the game, right? And I'm, like, pissed off. Like, I've been following Duke the whole season. I'm ready for this back-to-back championship, but it's, it's two seconds from vanishing, Yeah. right? I'm like, I can't believe it's going to end like this. Like, I, there's nothing like being a sports fan when you're a kid. Like it's just like so into it. It's like <laughs> life or death, right? And and then with 2.1 seconds left, they inbound the ball from under their own basket. They throw this like everyone has seen this clip. They throw this pass from under their own basket to Christian Leitner, who catches the ball at the opposite foul line. Does a pump fake, shoots the ball. The ball's in the air as the horn sounds and splash down. It's like a swish. Game over. Duke is going to the Final Four. And I lose it. Like, I am, like, jumping up and down, like, running around the basement like a madman. My dad is sitting there completely stoic with a smile. That's it. I remember this reaction. Like, that was as excited as he was going to get. This is the greatest game of all time, right? But in my mind, even today, just a great memory of, like, having that time to spend with them to see this. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I'll I'll end it uh, with a similar question to what you're asking me. If your dad was in a position now to really be able to uh, uh, describe to you what he thinks of your parenting style, uh, or maybe even if him and his father could comment on your parenting <laughs> style, what, what do you think they would say? Well, with my grandfather, it's hard to say, because my grandfather is, like your grandfather, also one of these military guys, yeah. right? From what I've heard, because I, I didn't know him that well, I've only met him like a few times in my life. He was, especially when he was younger, very strict, Yeah. right? I can't even go on a limb and even imagine what he would think of modern parenting. (laughs) You know, please eat a cookie. Can you please just finish the cookie? (laughs) Like, I don't think that would make sense. My dad's parenting style, I I think we've talked about this on the show. My parenting style is very similar to his style at the end of the day. You know, if anything, I probably try to spend a little bit more time with my kids. And we try to banter more about pop culture in, in a way. Like, you know, because because 
the fact that I was able to talk to my dad about Duke and North Carolina State and, and the Final Four, like, I, I love that banter. So with my kids, it's like, you know, if they're into something, it's great to be into it with them, right? Yeah. That's the one thing that my dad never really did. He, he never really bought into all the cultural references that I was into. Like, it really mystified him when I was telling him, like, The Matrix is an amazing movie. I made him watch this thing. He was, he was completely confused, <laughs> right? But aside from that, like, I feel like we're actually kind of similar. Like most of the things that he did, you know, like being at home, you know, cooking your own meals, you know, recycling, like this is all the stuff that we now do as dad. So I, I've always said this on the show that he was a little bit ahead of his time and he, he kind of is just the model I try to follow when it comes to parenting. Yeah, uh, that's great. Well, then hopefully this Father's Day, when we're being showered with uh, gifts and spoiled by our families, we'll be able to reflect back on how our own fathers uh, contributed to, to our parenting style. Absolutely. Absolutely. And someday, maybe someone will reflect on our parenting styles for us, too. <laughs> someday, maybe COVID restrictions will be lifted enough that I can actually spend Father's Day with my father. Ah, oh, yes, yes. Tying it all back together. That's right. We're moving in the right direction. Next year, Father's Day, we should be okay. <laughs> yeah, next year is going to be our all-out Father's Day blowout special. When we record that one, it's going to be all about all the amazing stuff we're doing in person. <laughs> all right. Well, enjoy Father's Day, everybody, and we'll see you in another week. Yeah, happy Father's Day, folks. See you next week.